How is Kettler adapting to the diversity challenge and more broadly the ESG issues in general? One of the benefits of going into the tax credit market was that I'd say that the majority of our employees are minorities or women. And same thing in senior leadership roles here. And and that's been for literally since the early 90s. So that's going on 30 years. And so, I mean, I feel really, we always felt really good about that. I mean, at one point, I don't know if this was true or not, but it was an interesting point. We had employees that spoke close to 40 different languages. Just, wow. just because of being in that submarket in D.C. with the amount of immigration here right, sure. and international. That's just the way it's been around here. And my former partner, Rick Hausler, was a huge proponent of diversity, diversity in, our, in our workforce and making opportunities happen for minorities and for women. It's still the same thing here today. So it was conscious. It was conscious. It was conscious, and we also happened to be in a position where we could make it happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was that sort of accelerated the, the process here. So. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate a one-on-one -on -one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me for episode number 43 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Before introducing my guest, I want to inform you of a survey I will be sharing with my mailing list for the podcast and anyone who subscribes at coenterprises.com slash subscribe. This survey will ask if you would be interested in participating in a cohort-based curriculum relating to navigating a career in income-producing real estate. This will address every type of discipline related to our industry, as it will be a self-directed curriculum of career planning. The survey will assess the, the interest to create this curriculum for anyone to join if interested in mapping out their careers and the impact they want to make in their lives. With enough interest, the opportunity will be available about six weeks after the survey's completion. You can look to see this survey in the next month or so. Your participation would be most appreciated. My guest today for the podcast is Bob Kettler. Bob is the founder and CEO of Kettler, a preeminent multifamily and land development firm located in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Bob has been an active participant in the D.C. real estate market since the early 1980s and has perhaps had the steepest descents and steepest declines of any developer in the region since that time. In his early 30s, he had over 20,000 acres of land he was developing 
in the early 19, in the early to mid 1980s, to see it then all evaporate when his partners and lenders failed and couldn't fund his projects in 1990 and 91. He quickly reconstituted his efforts in the early 90s toward tax credit apartment development and built a portfolio of these affordable housing projects and rebuilt his company. We talk about his youth growing up in the Kettler family who developed Montgomery Village, the Kettler Brothers entity, one of the largest PUDs in the DC region. And then his adventures in early entrepreneurship with small projects in DC while in school at George Washington University. After a meeting with Till Hazel, who was a major attorney and land developer in Northern Virginia, when he was 24 years old, right out of college, he was told to, quote, buy as much land as, as he could in Northern Virginia. And off he went with help from several savings loans in the region, as I suggested earlier. This began what became his adventure, as he calls it. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Bob Kettler. Bob, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. So, Bob, what is your current role at Kettler? Are you now the strategic thinker, over-the-horizon planner for the company? That's a good question. I, I think that's what others here would say my role is. I, I rely on our staff tremendously for a lot of our direction, where we're going to go with our new endeavors. But that's typically what my role is, but that's with a lot of input. In terms of operational matters, I've, I've sort of phased out of day-to-day, although I get weekly updates and monthly updates on just how operations are going, operations that we've got four different parts of the company I think we'll talk about a little later, but, but basically a management by exception guy. In other words, let me know if there's a problem, but if everything's going okay, we don't need to sort of hash that out on a periodic basis. Are you out front on deals though? I mean, as far as, you know, early on, or you just wait, you let your team bring them to you pretty much at this point? It really depends. It's funny, the longer you're in this business, the more, you know, stuff still comes in over the, over my transom, if you right, will. Right. And But I'd say the lion's share of, of projects come in through our acquisitions teams. Great. So let's, let's go back uh, in time here okay. and talk about a little bit about your origins and youth and parental influences. So you, you grew up amidst one of the leading home building families in in the D.C. area at the time, the Kettler family, Kettler brothers. The firm was founded uh, the year you were born, I understand. And so talk a little bit about your dad and their, his brothers and, and, that, and the origins of that, how that all started. Real estate's been on and off in our family for generations, including the generation before my father and his brothers. But my father was a commercial real estate broker with a Rust Company. He did a retail leasing and sold some office space. He also worked growing up some with some multifamily buildings that my grandparents, my grandfather and his brothers owned, but they were like small 10, 12 unit buildings uh, in Adams Morgan and uh, along Connecticut Avenue. Uh, And they would collect rent door to door, that kind of stuff and and do, do work around and maintenance and so forth. But they went into the business. My father's youngest brother was sort of the home builder. He was the muddy shoes guy, Clarence. 
And then his older brother, Charlie, was a general contractor. So their first work was really in building gas stations. They must have built 100, 125 gas stations around the Washington, D.C. area. And that's sort of how they got, got going. So that was, you know, like rental properties, general contracting's immediate revenue. So that was, that was a good business for them. They also had a brother-in-law who was a lawyer uh, named Four Lines. And okay. So I have a, a cousin who's got a company, Kettler Four Lines. So right. That's uh, their home builders. So anyway, they, they all they banded together and ultimately they brought in a financial partner, Frank Ewing, who was a, he, he died just like, I think two or three years ago at 101. He was like the oldest of all of the Kettler brothers, if you will. And, and he was a, a sage, wise, you know, pull himself up by the bootstraps, self-made man and uh, made a lot of money in. Uh, commercial real estate and sat on a number of boards like the gas company and Aetna and so forth. So so they got together and they formed uh, Kettler Brothers and Kettler Brothers became one of the largest home builders, actually the largest private home builder in Maryland in the 60s. And my father was sort of CEO of the of the operation. He His job was finance and marketing and merchandising. So he, he sort of had the vision for their big plant communities and their evolution into into that business. Was Montgomery Village the first of their big projects or was there other ones before that? They had a home building model that was buy land, develop it, and build houses on it, which actually my father, who was really my greatest mentor, was very frustrated with his partners because he felt that if you didn't draw a line between development and home building, you, you start lying to yourself, you know, it's like taking in your own laundry. So, so in other words, lying to yourself about what the value of the land is. Right. So right. they would argue about that. And he felt like if they were separate businesses, you would, you would perfect each model rather than let the excesses of one steal from the, you know. That was a lesson you learned, I'm that's sure, a lesson later on. <laughs> I, I, learned, I, I think I learned that lesson every day. It's like, you know, I'm always surprised. <laughs> And, and how I could deceive myself. So that was their home building model, and it worked quite well for them. My father, unfortunately, as you probably know, was very ill the last decade of his life, and he passed away at a young age of 59. That was in 1982. So, so he had challenges not only in trying to steer their ship and get their business model right, because as a general contractor, they, they just did little, little buildings here and there. That really wasn't a significant source of revenue for them. And, and then again, they had trouble sort of expanding into the next projects beyond Montgomery Village. As you might expect, they had trouble finding land that worked with their home building model. So anyway. Did uh, they ever separate it and have two separate enterprises or not? No. And I honestly think because my father passed away in 80, 82, but he was sick most of the 70s. He had hepatitis and almost passed away oh. in the early 70s. And then he got cancer in the late seventies, so right, mm. seventy-seven. So and he and he, he lived with that for, if you want to call it that, for four or five years. But his brothers didn't see the, the, the wisdom and saying, you know, we should do a separate land development company and then have a separate home builder and think about it that way because it's. It I, I think you know what I was like in my mid to late twenties. So, right. so I didn't have the perspective I have today, if you will. Yes. And, and so, yeah, I mean, they were, they were each sort of, sort of 
stuck in their respective roles. And Understood. so they were defending those roles. So my uncle Clarence was an incredibly energetic. He, he was really an artist. And I mean, the homes he built were exquisite. And he, they did a lot of what I'll call affordable townhouses in Montgomery Village because they got a zone for a lot of density. And they just really owned that market, that hundreds and hundreds of units a year. Mm-hmm. And But I think, you know, my father had been gone for eight years. Kettler Brothers kind of wound down in the, in the, right at, around the SNL crisis. Late 80s. Late yeah. 80s. And my father had passed away. Montgomery Brother, Village was about 80 to 90 percent finished by that time. It was 80 it? to 90 percent finished and three of the partners had passed away. So at, at that point, it was really just my, my uncle. Uh, mm-hmm. Clarence. So as long as you can remember, Montgomery Village was under construction, probably. Yeah, it was like, it was like <laughs> a brother or a sister. I mean, because we would talk about it around the table. That, and it, it, the, the origins of it, the core piece was my grandf- my mother's father's farm. So really? it was the Walker farm. So my mother's maiden name was Walker. So it was a 450. And then some of their relatives. So, oh. so they assembled all this land and they all moved further north in Montgomery County. And I assume the 270 at that time had been at least planned. So. Yeah. Oh, and built. And and IBM was there, and the right. National Bureau of Standards right, was there. Right, right. And there was this sort of synergy synergy and embryonic biotech and research sort of environment. So then you, let's talk about your schooling and stuff. So you went to Public school in Montgomery went to, County? Went to public school in uh-huh. Bethesda. I went to Walt Whitman High School. Okay. And graduated from there. And then I took a year off. I, I, I went to school at University of Miami. I thought I wanted to be like a marine architect, although I, Florida, I worked summer in, in Florida. Florida. Yeah, right. And decided that wasn't for me. And I took a year off and went sailing with my next-door neighbor. And we, we bought a little 31-foot boat and sailed down to... South American back. Wow. <laughs> Took a year to do that. Then came back. And then I went, came back and I started going to George Washington University. Started taking business classes there. And then I, through the consortium program, I also went to real estate classes at American University. Ah, okay. And then while you were in school, you started projects too, right? That's right. I, I never got my, my degree. I think I got enough credit hours, but I couldn't transfer them around. So, you know, that's my bad, right? So, but anyway, I probably did three or four real estate projects while I was going to school. So I was going to school mostly, mm-hmm. you know, like Tuesdays and Thursdays. I take some night classes, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I started my my cousin Dick Kettler and I when I think we were like I was twenty two or twenty three, bought a row house on Calvert Street for sure twenty six thousand dollars. It had over six thousand square feet. And we, we remodeled it ourselves into a four-unit apartment building with exposed brick wow. and refinished floors. And we took all the trim off and refinished all the trim. And we were, of course, about 100% over budget. So I think our budget was like 45000 it, it was It wound up being 90000 Oh, no. Yeah. It was a terrible story where we had to go. There was a second trust holder named, named Mr. Burns. I, maybe I shouldn't say that. But anyway, <laughs> and he was a bird victim. We didn't know that when we went to meet him. And so we needed him to agree to subordinate to an, to a larger first trust. So we had to uh, go to his house in Silver Spring. And his wife 
locked herself in the bathroom. And <laughs> my cousin and I are pounding on the bathroom door asking her, because he had transferred the note to her. Anyway, <laughs> we didn't know this until like a couple hours into the meeting. So anyway, so, you know, we, we learned how to negotiate early. Oh, wow. man, that was, I, I just remembered that. <laughs> tried to drive That's it out of my mind. That was your first deal. My first deal. But we got her to agree. I think we paid her like a thousand bucks. And we finished the project and we sold it for like a $75,000 pro- profit. So we sold it to the Postmaster General of the United States. Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. That's so that was the story. first urban redevelopment in, in Adams Morgan. Mm-hmm. That early, early, early in that. So did your dad give you some, lend you some money for that deal, or did you kind of uh, uh, have your own savings? Well, I think I did that on on my on my savings, <laughs> and I actually went to I borrowed the money from Leo Bernstein, who actually sat at National Savings and Trust. I think is that what it was? I think that's what it was. He was on Dupont yeah, Circle. Sure, I went in the branch, and he sat in a big desk right in the middle of the. Right by the front door. Classic and he sat, sat down, asked him for a loan, and he gave us a loan. He was the loan committee. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Anyway. And that was your first one. That was our first one, but then yeah. I went from there to, I did a nine-lot subdivision on 16th Street on Manchester Lane, which was more of a professional job than I'd mm-hmm. say my first job. Mm-hmm. And built nine semi-custom houses and uh, sold them for like in the, Mid twos to the mid threes. So back then, uh, that was 1975, 76. Was building active at that time in Washington in that part of the city? Or was it still? Uh, it was on Upper 16th Street, which was really kind of eclectic. It was it was where the wealthy African-American community was. Shepherd Park then, right? Manchester Lane was right where Military Road goes oh, under. Okay. Sure. Right, you could, you could, it's right off the off-ramp. Got it. Of Military Road at 16th Street. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we it was an interesting mix. We sold half, nine houses, we sold half to African-American families and half to white families. And we had one that was an interracial couple. So it was split right down the middle. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was a tremendous experience. I spent about a year and a half there every day and learning everything there was to learn about it. And so at the same time, I was also doing consulting work for Keller Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. yeah. So you, you knew and your dad told you early on that you weren't going to be part of the company because of the nepotism problem. That right. That's right. policy, at least. Mm-hmm. And the rationale behind that was? Well, you know, the more I think about it, the more it was like he just didn't think that Kettler Brothers' model was the right model. And that oh. was maybe, that was, that was a better way to put it, if you will. But there were also, you know... I don't know what, 30, 35 kids between all the various cousins. partners and cousins and, right. you know, and multiple marriages on a, on a couple of couple of partners counts. So, so, and then there was really no one operator of the company, if you will. It was really like four companies wrapped into one oh. company. So there's there property management and there was, they had a, a, a number of retail properties, and it, it was really, I don't think, organized for succession. Complicated. Yeah. Got it. So then you started doing some deals. You went to GW, and then you formed, you met, met, met a partner to start a company, right? A little later on? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I Talk mean, through that a little bit. Well, it depends on which partner. My first partner was my brother-in-law. 
okay. Scott Pasteltiner. So we formed, so I was building, I did one project for Kettler Brothers, which was, I, I was sort of an accidental developer, if you will, on that one. Okay. We, I was asked by my uncle to, to sort of work with the Bob Gladstone's company, Quadrangle, who was going to build an apartment project on Mass Avenue. We were going to, they were going to build an apartment project. The site went from Mass Avenue through to New Mexico Avenue. It was right off Ward Circle. Mm -hmm. So about a six or seven acre property. And so because there was a sort of a senior team leader, they thought, okay, Bob, you can work with the engineers, design the townhouse layout and all that. It turned out that Gladstone couldn't build the apartments for whatever reasons. And so we wound up with the entire site and I was the only person working on it. So I worked with Wayne Quinn, who was an early mentor of mine, to rezone it to 135 townhouses on what are called theoretical sites. So there's a complex zoning classification that allows you to get density and mm -hmm. have different offsets and setbacks, not so much based on lot lines, but based on theoretical sites. And that was all residential then, at that project? That was all residential. And I, so it basically got turned over. I got it zoned. I got the site plan approved. I got the project started, and but the Kettler Brothers home building team took over from that point. And at that point, I, I launched my own enterprise. So while I was doing, that's a project called Westover Place. It was a very successful townhouse project right there in Wesley Heights. So it gave you the confidence. You had that project plus your nine, nine unit. Those two deals kind Those of gave you the confidence to do your own land development. That, that, is, that is correct. So I... So while I was working on that, I went to Weaver Brothers through. And my father was giving me advice all the way through this. So sure. he's, he said, he said, you really don't want to be a home builder. He tried to talk me out of being a home builder. He said, it'll be the worst decision of your entire <laughs> life. You'll be miserable. So I think he was channeling himself. Anyway, so I said, hey, yeah, I really like real estate. And that's the only thing I know. So, so he said, well, don't do it in Montgomery County. He goes, you know, because he had been battered. He also had some apartments. He had been battered by rent control and, you know, no growth and blah, blah, blah. You know, so he was fed up. You were fortunate to get that advice early in your life. Well, and the other advice he gave me was he says, there's this young guy named Till Hazel. <laughs> he says, he says, you call him up. You tell him I told you to call him up and go see him. So I did. I, I got and So and I was shopping for sites. He said, don't look at any of this stuff over here. Maryland, just go over there to Virginia. You know, if you're going to do this, at least do it someplace where they're a little more friendly. So I went over there and, and I went to see uh, Till, and I guess he's maybe 15 or 20 years older than me. And, and he, he's, you know, he's just talking a blue streak. And I thought, wow, this guy's on fire. And, and he had a law firm and he was building Burke Center. And so he, had, he, and, he, had, he and Mill Peterson were He and Mill Peterson were all already hooked up and they were. They were, you know, in the fast lane. And he said, I'm going to give you really quick advice. He said, he said, we got a number of really smart young lawyers here. They can help you with your subdivision, all that stuff. But I'm going to just tell you what I think. And I think that if you buy all the land you can buy in Fairfax County between now and five years from now, and just buy all you can and don't look back. And I said, well, that's... Pretty, pretty, pretty certain. What, how old are you at this time? When I when was twenty four. Wow. So I said, "Well, that's okay." 
So we're not to Centerville and Weaver <laughs> Brothers had a site that had been like zoned for like 400 lots, but it was subject to a moratorium. So they needed to build a new sewer plant in the Upper Occoquan in Fairfax. So this land had been off the market because it was unbuildable due to a sewer moratorium. And when it came back in, I was introduced to the owner of the property, a guy named Bernie Steinberg, who was an older steel guy. Yeah, so he had a steel plant. And he was like a second father to me. And he, and he wanted me to hook up with his son, who was also going in the home building because we were the same age, but his son wanted to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so anyway, he built his subdivision. I built my next to And we, you know, compared notes and, like, you know, try to figure out what we were doing together. God, he was funny. Doug Steinberg. And he would, he'd always test his new jokes out on me because we weren't selling any houses because interest rates are, like, 18%. So this was around... Uh, 77 to yeah. 80. 1980 was tough. Yeah, yeah. And he'd go, you know, he'd, he'd say things like, he goes, hey, you know, I'm trying out my new no-interest loans, you know, which was one of the gimmicks back then. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but nobody's interested in them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, it's got oh, Jesus. You know, Heady Youngwood type <laughs> material. <laughs> anyway, he, he quit the home building business. I don't know what he did after that. So interest rates then came down, obviously, when, you know, Mr. Reagan came into office that's right. in 1985 by that time. Right. And that's when I arrived in Washington. And it just seemed to me that we were already actually probably 83, 84, things really started accelerating, mm-hmm. and particularly in Northern Virginia. Just, right. And not just in the home building area and commercial, too. It's just mm-hmm. exploding. So how did you get the capitalization to start acquiring the, the amount of land that you ended up buying? Because I know you, maybe Milt Peterson, and possibly uh, Dwight Shar, probably with the land barons of Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. at least as far as I know, unless there were other players that were buying as much dirt as you guys were. So. Well, first of all, I was extremely lucky with who I was buying land from and the timing of the deregulation of the savings loan industry. Okay, so so first and foremost, I was buying land from Mr. Steinberg, who had about 400 acres. And he was happy just selling me a slice of it at a time. And this piece of land had a tremendous amount of, of open space with it. It was a flat lake, stream valley. And in those days, you could pull density off of it. When he subdivided this land, which was like in the early 60s, he didn't care. You know, he just wanted lots of a certain size. But I was going back and re-subdividing it and increasing the density by about 30, 35% each time we would take down a section. So we were getting a lot, we were making money on the land and on the home building because we were buying it at one price and, sure. and, and recasting the land. He finally came to me and goes, would you just buy all of this from me? And I said, well, I don't know if I got the money, but let me, let me, let me see if I, what I can do and I'll so we started that conversation, and he said, look, he said, I'm only going to sell it to you. You've been great. You're like a friend of the family now. And so just, but if you can buy the whole thing, I'll make a great deal with you. So at that same time, I met with Perpetual, and they had a service corporation called Suma Wheel, and it was run by a really smart guy who I'm still doing business with right now named Tom Ferrisy. He was president of it, and he came in. He had this presentation with a flip chart that basically said, we can lend 
Perpetual, just for the listeners, oh. was a savings and loan that was started probably in the 1960s, I'm going to guess, in Northern Virginia, yeah. maybe early 70s. No, Perpetual went back years. It was the Owen family. Oh, I think okay. it went back, back to the back to the teens or 20s. And okay. So it was an old line Washington family uh, savings institution. It was a big bank. And so they had this service corp that, that they formed because they could do joint ventures under deregulation. And so he came to me and said, first thing was, you know, we can lend you, we can lend you 100% of the appraised value of mm-hmm. the land. Number two, non-recourse. Okay. So, wow. okay. So wow. no equity needed and, and we'll split the profit basically 50, 50. This was debt. This was debt. Okay. And it was like, after I like got my finger out of a year to make sure that <laughs> I was hearing it right. I, I, we said, well, holy crap, you know, this is really a great deal. So, so I put Steinberg's land under contract and assembled some other land around it. And a man who was a partner at uh, Hazel's firm, I brought him in. His name was Rick Hausler, and he yes. was our lawyer for this. And Rick wound up becoming my partner, ultimately, at, mm-hmm. at Kettler and Scott and KSI. And and anyway, we we wrapped all this land together and assembled other pieces subject to zoning. And then we, and then adjacent to our, so we assembled about 650 or 700 acres. And remember, we're just a little home. Where's the specific location again? It's, it's, if you go north on 28 from Route 66, it's, it's about 600 acres to the west of Route 28, about a half mile up. So that's now Sully Station? That's now Sully Station. Okay. That's what I thought. So, to enhance the value even more, we 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 did a comprehensive plan amendment with a Westfield Boulevard main entrance. So right. rather than back on a back road, we now had a front entrance on a major uh, state road. And that was with Henry Long. Right? And that was with Henry Long. And they were also partners with Perpetual. So right. the three of us together were doing about 3,000 acres out of, and remember, I mean, I was a 50 unit a year home builder. So So we had to build an organization. And the way we could do that is when we went to closing on the property, we basically financed millions and millions of dollars out tax-free because it was excess financing proceeds. And so that gave us capital to basically go do our next deal. So in in addition to us being able to get working capital out of this project without putting any working capital into it, the market took off at the same time. I mean, hyperinflated and Western Fairfax in those days was re- lower priced housing. Well, Sully Road was just a two lane road at that point. It was just a two lane road and they did a tax district and we were part of that tax district plan mm-hmm. to widen Route 28. And that was all happened while we were developing a Sully Station. So you said you build 50 units. Uh, now, were you actually building or were you just selling lots? Oh, no, no, no. When we started Kettler and Scott in 1977, yeah. we bought 75 lots okay. and we were a home builder. You were building. I was a builder. And I wound up through that sort of piece of my career, we built about a thousand houses. Oh, okay. okay so, so Sully so, Station, you built out yourselves? You no, 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 no. Uh, so what happened was we continued being a home builder, but we decided not to compete in our planned community. So, so we were doing... Other projects, 150 lots so here, your father's lots there. Paid off, then. right? We separated those <laughs> two things because we needed. Well, we were successful at the home building, but it didn't hold a candle 
It's a land, develop, development. land development business. I mean, it, particularly in an up market, because land, if housing is inflating at 10%, most of that, the cost of housing isn't going up at that rate. The cost to build it, it's all in the land. And that was the one lesson my father drilled into my head over and over again. It's like, it's like don't kid yourself that the, the values in the land. Now, today's model is different, okay, because scale, light asset management, okay, of, of you know, just-in-time deliveries, panelization, manufacturing, the way you can spread your indirect costs across multiple projects. If you don't have that, you shouldn't be in the home building business, in my opinion, unless you're custom or right. you have a niche. Right. But like an EYA has a niche. Okay. Right. Sure. Uh, but other than that, if uh, the public home builders, you, you can't make any money comp competing against that. It has to be volume. It's got to be volume, and it's got to be yeah volume. But it's really on the on the cost side too. It's not just sure. It's Economies just not lower scale. margins, higher dollars. You know, it's it's economies of scale. Economies of scale. Huge. Yeah. So let's see. But anyway, getting back to that, we we got to expand dramatically because sure. we had this free capital, if you will. Uh -huh. Plus we started getting profits from these projects because they were moving very rapidly and we're getting much higher land values when we were selling the land. So we went off on a tear buying land after that. So I met your many time business partner and former tenant, Gary Rappaport, <laughs> whom I helped finance several properties. And I've interviewed Gary for the podcast in 1986, after seeing his sign on a shopping center that you and he co-developed at Sully Station, which I think was the first shopping center there. Right. Safeway Anchored Center, as I recall. It may still be there. I'm not sure. It's still there. Yeah. Yep. And so I saw his sign, and that obviously, as you just said, was your first major development. Talk about that partnership and how that evolved with Gary. At the time we started this business, I had... A number of advisors from my uh, our real estate legal advisors and Arthur Anderson was my accountant. And I had to staff up to to meet the quality of the, and, and to make sure that we uh, were doing what we were doing the right way. So we brought in really good personnel and planners and, and so forth. So Gary was so on the legal side and on the uh, structuring side. I was introduced to Steph Tucker. And Steph Tucker is, I mean, probably regarded as one of the top estate planning, real estate. And tax. And tax. Yeah. And so I needed all those things. And, mm -hmm. and so he introduced me to Gary and he said, you guys are about the same age. You're both starting businesses. There's good synergies because you're developing land that has, these were all mixed use projects. So we had Retail, we had age-restricted housing, we had apartments. And um, Gary was a home builder before he was and a Gary was a home builder, builder, so we could talk the same language exactly. there. Mm -hmm. And so so that turned out to be an excellent relationship. So Gary was a tenant of mine in my office building for 20 years. We bought, I bought into at least five or six of his partnerships. So, and we still own the first shopping center we bought together, mm -hmm. which I think we bought in 1984, 1985. It's Rockbridge Center. Rockbridge Center, yeah. Which I financed. Oh, that, hey, there you go. 
You want to refinance it? <laughs> I think we financed it about five or six times. I will. Just one comment about that property. The biggest challenge with that real, that property was there was no left entrance. That's right. And off, they closed the median the after we bought it. Yeah. Yes. So it was a really hard leasing effort. So you had a hard time with the anchor there. That's, that's right. Probably still an issue with the property. It's still an issue. So, and I've got great negative basis in it. So that's, <laughs> I think I'm going to own it forever and ever. <laughs> Bury me with a deed. Yeah. So I'm going to make a, a quote that I read about you, and I'll, I'll let you react to it. So Mary Nusdorf, who was the leader of Clark Enterprises, uh, working directly for Jim Clark, said in a, in a quote, said, Bob is a visionary. He can take a farm and a location that, that I would consider in the middle of nowhere and can visualize a fully completed residential development better than anyone I know. Did that vision come from being around it, around it as a child and listening to your to your family you know, look at deals or what? How did that happen? How did how did you get that skill? Well, before I get to that answer, Larry, God rest his soul, he, we did business together for thirty years. We consider Dupont Circle the middle of nowhere. Okay, I mean, <laughs> I mean to him, <laughs> he, he he was a downtown kind of guy. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but we did it. We did a ton of stuff in the suburbs together, uh-huh. and and it was a really great team. I mean, he, number one, uh, there's nobody smarter than that guy, and there's nobody who lived and breathed sophisticated real estate like him that I've ever met. I mean, other than maybe, you know, Stephen Roth at Vernado or something like that, but Larry was in a class by himself in the city. So... That for him to say that, I, 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 was, I was honored, to be honest with you. And we did a number of projects in the middle of nowhere, and we did quite well with them. So, Talk uh, about that relationship. What, how, did, how did it evolve? So, at the, so I was just doing land through the end of the 80s. And then when the SNL crisis hit, that's a whole story in itself. Because that was, I mean, we were dependent on one partner, and we, were de- and we had one product. And, well, and but I won't get there yet. But, but the we'll come but back but, to that. but at that same time, Clark was principally an office building developer. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to there. they wanted we wanted to find out a way to do to get back into the housing market when the housing market came back. And they they came to me, the Clark people, and said, "Look, you really know this business, and we think it's going to come back. We have capital. We're." And we want we want to diversify, and at the same time we came to the conclusion: you got to diversify. You got to diversify not only what you, products you have, and you got to build recurring income, but you also need to to have a variety of, of capital sources. You know, so that, those were our lessons. And so we endeavored to jump into the residential business, and we tried a number of different avenues. And we finally uh, got to apartments. So we started doing apartments together and we did a lot of apartments together and have done a lot of apartments together to this day, whether as a general contractor or as partners. But the model then was primarily tax credit uh, deals, right? Right. So the equity was easy to get, easier to get than traditional equity at that time. Zero. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, so we developed 30 five tax credit properties between 1994 
2002. So that's one every 120 days. So was Clark buying the tax credits or who was buying the tax credits? Were they selling to companies or how? No, how no it's they... interesting. We co-owned only 13 of those. Okay. So the rest of them I did on my own in the company here. And, but they built when we, so, so we did about half of those were rehabs. Okay. And so we didn't need a general contractor for that. And, but all the new construct mm-hmm. stuff, we right. basically split the developer side, if you will. And we would bring in a tax credit investor. So there are, you know, lots of them out there. It's interesting. You know, before then, you wouldn't have thought of Clark as being a, a home builder. Or, a, or an apartment developer at the time. You know? Well, and they formed a new company to do that. So right. they and because they were doing a mostly concrete, you know. Right, and they amazing. had a union and a non-union shop. So right. So uh, so that whole enterprise has evolved considerably. And, right. So you know you're blowing and going in the in the 80s, and then all of a sudden 1990 came along. <laughs> right. And so in 1985, when I joined, I came here. I joined the, the I worked for the BF Saul company. Right. And so I was in the mortgage banking unit. So we were doing income producing financing and apartments and office and retail. And, but another, you know, of course, Saul company owned Chevy Chase Bank. Mm -hmm. And they had probably 20 other enterprises that Frank Saul had in his portfolio. Right. And one of those enterprises was an equity joint venture group that wanted to buy land. Right. And so... They found you. So talk about that relationship and how that evolved. So, Previous to Frank and I getting together with a variety of deals, I had my relationship with Perpetual, and we did right. a couple of deals with them. Right. And then Dwight Shaw came to me. So there's a part <laughs> of the story that you need to hear, which is Dwight came to me and he said, you're like the prince of land or some, <laughs> some flattery that... I knew I was getting sold something. Mill Peterson couldn't have been in the room when he said <laughs> no, that. No, 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 no. So he said, he said, but I've got this land company, ND Land, and but you're like buying a lot of land. So how do we team up together? Right, right. And uh, anyway, one thing led to another. And so we wound up forming a joint venture called NV Kettler. And oh. NV Kettler contracted to buy two sites. One was called Potomac Lakes. The other was called Cascades. Cascades. And Potomac Lakes was a piece of REO owned by a bankrupt savings and loan in Texas. And Cascades, which was the other half of it, they got, we merged them together to call them Cascades. Cascades was owned by a Japanese home building company called Aoki. Mm -hmm. So we had to settle with these Japanese sellers and they flew people over and they transcribed all the settlement sheets into into uh, Japanese. How would the Japanese plug into that site? That's just, that's incredible. I, I don't know. It's the people we've met in some of these deals, particularly in the, in the, in the, the, the Southern SNLs that were defunct, but still op- operating, you know, they were zombies. And so we, we, we contracted to buy all that and we were going to settlement on all of that. And then the NV people came to me and said, sorry, just kidding. <laughs> We're buying Ryan Hobes and our new bank covenants don't let us own land. So, you know, that's a little late to tell us this. 
And they said, well, you know, we'll work it out. And so at that point, I had already met with the Saul people about other opportunities, and we transitioned it right over. And so ND stayed in it as a purchaser of 2,000 lots. So we they basically substituted their equity with deposits on, on What a lots. home run that was. That, that really worked out quite well. And then until, until, until they went bankrupt. But, and then, you know, but everything went to hell after that anyway. So it really didn't matter. So well, this, this happened, what, about 1987, 88? Yeah, like 86, 87. Okay. Yeah. And then three years later. All three years later, yeah. Was, so we had like 20 home builders signed up. We built this giant pre-sales park, which is sort of the way it was done back then with, you know, pre-sales happening out of trailers. So you, Ashburn Village and Brambleton were other sites too. Didn't you? Ashburn Village wasn't mine, but Brambleton was. So Brambleton, I actually started before we acquired a cas all of Cascades. So Cascades was 3,000 acres, about 6,000 units. Mm -hmm. We had The way we made that deal is we basically agreed to give the county all the infrastructure that they asked for, including an interchange and six-laning route seven. And but, then you had a commercial project there, and did you do that with with Giant Food? Were they the were they your? Yes, yes. So we had a town center. Then? We had a town center, right? And so just to accelerate, so a lot of the builders basically stopped buying land from us. We had all this infrastructure in. Mm -hmm. We were building everything on a big two hundred fifty million dollar revolving line of credit, which teaches you a lesson about revolvers because <laughs> if, if, if it stops revolving, it just stops. But the yeah, so you're we, pointing we said, the revolver yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyhow, to make a long story short, to accelerate cash flow, we started selling commercial sites. So we brought in Home Depot, and then we made a deal with Giants Development Subsidiary right. to do this big town center project. Right. And we, you know, we had we had the world's best designers. I mean, we had Suzaki and and and, and others come in, and it was really quite a great plan. And we did a lot of deals with Giant Food. I think we built about 15 shopping centers through this period of my career, about a third of which were Giant Food anchored. So That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so then things kind of went south. And so basically, getting back to the, to the Larry Nussdorf story, he was kind of your next stage after all these, you had to unwind these ventures with the salt company and everything else, right? Right. And, and we had other deals, every deal in every real estate deal that was levered the way you could lever in those, in that period had no equity left, had right. negative equity. And to make matters worse, and we were dealing with 14 or 15 banks at the time. And I think 14 of them were either consolidated into other banks or they failed. So whether you had a healthy project or not, when a failed bank, you don't even have a place to send the check. I mean, it would take, sometimes you would hear the next week from the FDIC or the RTC. RTC. Sometimes you wouldn't hear, we didn't hear in one case for almost a year. We had nowhere to send the money. And, and we didn't, couldn't draw either. So, right. you know, it, it, everything just came to a screeching halt. And so, yeah, it, it took years to work out of some of that stuff. But, yes, jumped off into the next stage. And the next stage was apartment development. And then we also re-entered the land business, and we were buying at a lower basis. So we, we started up again, but nowhere near the same volume we did. Did Clark help you with that, or did you have other yes. partners? Yeah, we did two or three land development deals together. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, but I would say we the largest one we did was a place called Potomac Station. It's in Leesburg. It's just north. It's just wet. It's just west of Goose Creek, and it's between Route Seven and the river. We had about twenty four hundred houses there. It was a decent size. This project. was post crisis. Post crisis. This was mid to late nineties. Ah, and same formula. We built a big major collector road through the middle of it. We dedicated school sites, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So you transitioned your business considerably away from the higher leverage to primarily a higher equity JV partnership model, right. which was with Clark. Was this a strategic decision? And did you receive counsel from others to look at business in this way at that time? Well, I must say we communed regularly with our partners at Clark, but we also had institutional partners that we started doing business with in, in the late 90s. So, and I still had my existing land development business. So, so we had, we, we still had some residual sites and projects that were ongoing. And then we also had development agreements with Saul to complete the projects we were in. But your deal structure changed going oh, forward. Oh yeah, the deal structure changed. So, so we, we started up the land development business again. We were big in the tax credit business. We, we started the management company, so we were managing the, the properties. And what about personnel? What happened you know, in 1990? Did you have to lay a lot of people off? All we, that? The, the interesting thing was is that not really, because we continued to manage all of these assets. Oh, I see. And then when the management agreement burned off, we transitioned a lot of those employees to the Saul company. Oh, really? So, yeah, everybody kind of landed on their feet, which we felt good about. Wow, that's great. So you've grown quite a bit since mm -hmm. the, the late 90s. So talk about the scale of your company now and how it evolved. Your, what's your portfolio now? Oh, so. boy. So our portfolio, we, we manage just under 20,000 apartments, and we've got about 3,500 in development. Those in, are third-party? Uh, no, of no. 13,000 13, are ours or we own a part of, right. and about, about 6,000, mm -hmm. 7,000 are third-party. Mm -hmm. And what we've done with that business, I won't get too far astray on this one, is, is we used to manage about 33,000, 34,000 apartments. Wow. A lot of them were in the Northeast, but a lot of them we were doing lease-ups for developers and or we were leasing what I'll call B and C apartments. We had 40 or 50 projects in Connecticut, Long Island, New Jersey, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, Delaware, Baltimore, and, and those mostly institutional investors, and they were trading in and out of these. And right. it just, we didn't see any alignment in that business. We were also operating nine different software programs. <laughs> so the, you know, and a lot of, a lot of our competitions <gasps> doing that. So we decided to sort of reboot our whole organization about three years ago. We brought in a new president here who's been fantastic, Cindy Fisher. And who's really, she calls herself a process engineer. She's just an efficiency expert. And, and we said, first of all, we need to align ourselves with our third parties. So they're people like us. They're family offices, investors that want to own long-term and have multiple properties, and we can work with them on their portfolio. And they run our operating system. Much cleaner, much more efficient, and everybody's happy. So, and in our portfolio, 
It's about 13,000. So I think the portfolio size overall is just under 6 billion. So of that, how much is tax credit and how much is, you know. So the standard? 34 or 5 tax credit projects, we've sold about half and they were mostly the smaller ones. So we still have 4,000 of them, mostly in really great locations. And they're going, and just like all apartment projects, they really start to, they, the expense ratio starts to really go in, in your favor and become much more effective after about 300 units. So most of the projects we own are three to 400 units. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, and, economies of scale, with the amount of size of your portfolio, I'm sure you're getting cost savings across the portfolio too. Yeah, if, you, if you're in the tax credit management business, you need to have a whole compliance department. Right. You need to have people that are specialized in that product because you run them at a different, at a different operating level. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have the same amenity base and all that. Sure, sure. So from your website, you have four business lines, apartment development, acquisitions, land development, and property management. To keep all these fluid, have you considered some kind of roll-up capitalization uh, for some or a part of the company? Yes. I mean, it, it, because, you know, it's, I, I listened to Gary Rappaport's uh, podcast and, and he talked about, you know, being private and liquidity, you know, and the, right. the two things are being liquid and being private are not necessarily coexistent. They, <laughs> and there's friction uh, there. <laughs> although, so we've really spent the last, well, we've really spent the last 10 years restructuring, not restructuring, but lowering the amount of debt we have. So we've reduced it, our corporate debt, by about 85%. Wow. And and so we capitalize things differently now. We have a much higher proportion of equity in our deals, you know. So and we're principally doing projects through high net worth individuals, family offices, some institutional players. But the institutional players that we are doing deals with are more long term oriented. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we've got a whole set of projects that we do that are with public companies like uh, public storage. And, Okay. RPAI. So if you were to do, a, let's just say, hypothetically, you do a ground-up condominium project, mm-hmm. how would you raise capital for something like that today? The only one of those we've done since 2003 to 2005, we've done 3,000 condominiums here, right. so mostly mm-hmm. concrete. Right. The one I most recent one we did, we did in a partnership with Meridian at the borough, and that was institutionally capitalized. I mean, I had my share of mm-hmm. my slice in on the GP side. But if I was going to do a deal like that today, I would do it uh, with an institution, mm-hmm. and I would uh, probably do what's you know a typical ninety ten or eighty twenty deal, right? Right, and, and we would fund the ten or twenty percent. Would apartments be structured the same way, or would you look at that differently? Apartments would be structured the same way. Okay, but but we're more doing deals with family offices and not institutions that so we're looking. For long-term ownership, we're also right. doing some 220, 221 D4 kind ah, of things. So, uh-huh. so those require you can you can finance about eighty-three percent on those. So, there's one individual that we we own all the apartment, and you know, and we're we're funding those one hundred percent ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, have you looked at strategic multi-asset programmatic structures at all with with institutions, or is it mostly one-off each deal? You know, it thing? sounds more real than it is. I mean, it's, uh, if, if we have, you know, we would look at maybe a reach structure because, but because we own our assets, you know, in different ways, shapes and form, it's hard to roll the assets up. Got it. 
And, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of waiting out to see where these tax laws go, too, because, right. you know, we, we've done probably six or seven significant 1031s if that's not available anymore. And if, if they double the capital gains rate, I mean, the way we get capital here is basically by selling assets mm-hmm. and or from cash flow. We still have a significant land development company. And, you know, so we pay ordinary tax on that. It's but if the capital gains goes away. It's hard to be a REIT in the land development business. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. That, That's hard. No, the REIT would be obviously separate. But, right. but, but I mean, we're happy. We're in a happy place right now. You know, it's, we've got pretty much all the capital we need. That's uh, great. And we've got a variety of different sources. So you were last year cited uh, large, largest developer of the year, 2020. Apparently, the pandemic didn't slow your pace at all. It seems that you've partnered with just about every commercial developer in the region that doesn't have a residential development capability, or maybe some that even do. Have all those relationships worked out well? How do you structure capitalizations for projects where you are not the lead or where you are the lead and you bring others on? Yeah, so yes, we we have been sought out by many public companies that don't that are developers that don't have our expertise or local knowledge. So, mm-hmm. you know, Columbia Town Center, the redevelopment of redevelopment of Tyson's Corner Mall, you know, those are examples. You know, we, we were brought into Square 54 with Boston Properties and JLL. We worked on, I mean, we brought Suzaki into that. We were brought in as the planner and the sort of the you know, face of the, residential piece of that we wound up selling that back to Boston properties but you know that's a typical example and they've since developed that in-house those, those skills and yeah one Loudon is the same thing so yeah we've been sought out and and a lot of times they develop the expertise in-house or they continue to go with us our largest relationships with with public storage and with the mile project where that's a redevelopment of 40 acres in Tyson's Corner. Again, we brought in Suzaki as the land planner. We just got that zoned last year. So what happened to the the, the uh, public the storage? Is that gone now? Or oh, what? no, no, no. They have a subsidiary or an affiliate that is called PS Business Parks. And oh, they, okay. They own multiple office parks throughout the United States. Got it. And with, I mean, probably the biggest trend in suburban real estate is the redevelopment of some of these office parks and malls. Sure. And so they've got the office park side. So, so they bought nine properties from West group or what remnants of West group. They bought a city, city line. Right. And they, and then they brought us in as their partner and developer. And so we rezoned those nine contiguous parcels into a, a project called the mile because it's got a mile perimeter around it. And it's adjacent to Capital One's headquarters. Oh. So we're, we've got a second site. building going, and we've, we've got the whole site zoned. We're in for several of them. That's walking distance to the, to the, what's the name of that metro station there? That's it, Tyson On the Central. On east side? Oh, yeah. Central. Yeah. Okay. you got McLean Central, Spring Hill. So as Pam, your, part, your associate, mentioned several projects, so I'll just start with Vita. Is that the one at Tyson's Corner Mall? Yes. Okay. So that was a very interesting. That's the only built. That's the only project we've ever built on a fee basis, and we built it for the owners of the mall, which Mace Rich, Mace Rich, and Alaska Permanent Fund. 
and uh, they brought us in and we, we, they had it partially designed. And so there are lots of transfer beams in there because we had to hold the building up differently and get the entrance did you, changed around. Did you approach it as a, on a condominium regime with them or were they adamant that you had to be a fee development deal at the time? For the, the partners in that were Heinz, Bass Brothers, partner developers, all fee developers. Right. Uh, Bass Brothers, Heinz, Kettler, and Mesa Ridge. Okay. And and there were four, there were five different components of that project. There was a there was a massive plaza. There was thousands of cars of underground parking for both the mall and for this project. It was a hotel. But there's there one a, ownership. It's it's not one multiple. Ownership. It's no. not structured as a condominium regime then per se. It's subdivided that way. Oh, but, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but you did it as a fee. You, you didn't take it. Yeah. And so our piece, we did, in, Kettler's job was infrastructure, the big deck, the parking, and the apartment building. That must have been an interesting documentation, that project. <laughs> I can only imagine. It was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of work, deal. a lot of brain damage. It was, uh, that was very complicated. Yes, um, I can only imagine. Because we also had to build a bridge to the metro station. Oh. So that that was... And what was that? Was that with Metro Wamada? No, that was, that was a privately built bridge. So if you look at that project, you'll see one bridge connecting into the pedestrian bridge that Wamada built. So that was private. Okay. That was private. And that was an infrastructure requirement as a proffer to the deal? Or did you... Well, did you want... The, so what happened with this project, you were essentially separating mall and residential right. and office pedestrian traffic from the vehicular traffic. I got so it. one's at one level and one's at a lower level. Uh -huh. And so this way you could connect the sort of elevated pedestrian level to the metro. I've never walked that, so I yeah. don't, you have to walk it to understand it. I assume yeah. it's complicated. I, I, I still get lost over there. It's, it's <laughs> huge. It was about $700 million, and that was a lot of money in 2011. So then the, the, you'd mentioned it earlier, but Columbia Mall, was that with Hughes? Mm -hmm, that's right, yes. Okay. So we what built, did you develop there? Just under 1,000 apartments in three phases and I think about 70,000 feet of retail. So it's, it's again, it's, and we've been sought out for these things too because we've redeveloped, we redeveloped in that mall area and I think that's what got us a job in, on their sort of RFP. And then, so that's been very successful. That's a, that's a great project. And they approached you on that? Yes. That's great. And then the borough, of course, right here with uh, my friends David and Bruce. Right, um, yeah. David approached me five years ago and said, you know, we need a residential, we're a resi developer. And we came in and worked on the design. Pam, Pam, uh, who you mentioned before, Pam Tyrell has been with us the whole ride. She's been here the whole time. And it runs our development. We got that redesigned and made it cost brought the cost in so it became feasible and i've uh, toured that those projects and there's two completely different apartment focuses there it seems it's pretty interesting the way the thought process that went into that right i thought that was fascinating actually. yeah it's 550 apartments roughly and so right. yeah there are 150 in one shorter building that right. have sort of a different vibe and exactly and, and, and target market and then the high-rise so I assume that's just kind of the urban feeling that they wanted to project. That's right. I mean, the rents are basically the same. So it's really two different sort of markets we were going after. Right, right. One more hip and the other one right, a little bit right. more empty nester type. Yeah, you know. exactly. 
And then there's the condominiums there as well, which are right. basically sold out. And then Union Market, you're active there. That's right. So we had assembled that site. It was really two sites. It was a cluster of about 30 Korean families own, own some warehouses there, vegetables, produce, that type of thing. Were you working with Edens on this, or how, how did that happen? No, actually, this was not one of their sites. So this was, okay. we, we bought it directly from this family, and mm -hmm. then the other half of it we bought from Doug Jamal. So he owned a building there that we acquired from him. Then we merged the two together, and we, that's also another venture with another uh, I'm surprised he didn't commercial. want to stay in the deal a little bit, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's not normally a seller, so it's interesting. Yeah, so that worked out for him, and you know, we we approached. I mean, we would have done it either way with him, uh -huh. and and I've done a lot of work with Doug. We manage his buildings, so I consider him one of my best friends in this business. He's a, <laughs> he's so different and so talented. He's a unique guy. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he's one of the visionary guys yeah, actually in the, really. in the marketplace. What he did on 6th and 7th Street downtown is amazing. It really is. It really is. So then Union Heights, what is that project? Is that a different? Union Heights is a, we bought, a, and I might have the numbers here wrong, we bought an existing project from Clark, and it was not through our relationship with him. It was on the market, and we had the best bid. Mm -hmm. And it was 240 or 250 units. I forget what it was. And, but then there was a site to build another 340 next to it. So it was the and ultimate. where is this located? This is right at Bladensburg and H. Okay. In Maryland Avenue. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So it's about, I'd say it's maybe three the quarters. H Street over. Quarter, right at the right, east right, end of it. Right yeah. at the east end so of it. So you're right next to the, to the uh, Heckinger Mall there. Yeah, exactly. And we're, we're about three quarters of a mile south of uh, Union Market. Got it. So we basically uh, repositioned the project and built a brand new project next to it and then all new amenities. But the scale of it now at 550 units. Uh, and that's with an institutional How's partner. It so D.C. and all of the areas where you have high employment and are relatively urbanized got hit during the Pretty pandemic. Hard. Other areas where we are in the southeast, for example, are exploding during the pandemic and who building is. And so in this case, rents fell, but there we've just started the lease up and we're just starting to move people into the second phase. And our our leasing is up like 50, 60 percent. Really? So it's jumping back. Even though people aren't going back to offices there, that's coming back. It's a great price point. It's stick built, so there's not well, a lot of that. People are there. coming back to the city then, is what you're saying. Yes. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. That's great. That's good news. The final one on this list is Vine One Loudon. So. Right, that's a venture with RPAI, and it's in it's on Route Seven, as you know, out in, in Loudon County. They did a tremendous job with the retail there. It's it's as good a open air experience as you'll find in the suburbs anywhere in the. My Washington friend Tom market. Maskey was involved in that. I think. When it, when it was previously Miller and Smith, yes. Or, yes. So it was. They did it. The architecture's perfect for right now. Their their retail mix is perfect for right now, and so we've built four hundred apartments right at, at, at an extension of the main street there. 
-hmm. And we're just we're in lease up now, and we will have the first occupancy in a month, month and a half. So we by the time I think this comes out. So That's great. So yeah, we're very, very happy with that project. That's exciting. Yeah. So you've now expanded beyond the DMV into North Carolina and Florida. Talk about those projects and what's going on there. So about 10 years ago, we thought DC's tough. A, it's hard to find anything here. B, if you want to buy something, the returns that the market is getting here, we can't compete with a lot of what capital is willing to, to take here. So we, we wanted to go into markets where, A, there was more rent growth, B, there was more availability of products, and C, where we could have a diversity, diversity geographically, mm-hmm. and B, in some lower cost areas, which we think people are, it's so clear that people are moving to those areas, it, it's, it's undeniable what's mm-hmm. happening. And so 10 years ago, we bought a portfolio in Virginia Beach with an institutional part, a money fund, local-based. And we've traded out of that portfolio over the last few years. Did very, very well a value-add deal. And since then, we've bought another 13 or 14 assets, mostly in the Carolinas. We have a portfolio in Charleston. We have a portfolio that sort of runs from Greensboro, Durham, Chapel Hill, and the Research Triangle. RTP. These are conventional These are deals. conventional deals. So we started first by acquisition. So we bought a, just under 20 assets or 20 assets in the Southeast. We've now started development. So we've, we've opened up an office at Tampa and we've had a big site under contract. We've actually closed on part of it in Tampa. That's going to be about 3,500 units. It's, a, it's an urban redevelopment of Ybor City. It's an opportunity. It's, it's got transit. It's got everything. It's got redevelopment. It's going to be vertical. It's, it's historic. It's going to be, I'd say, half vertical and half horizontal. It's going to be wrappers. It's going to have maybe a half a million to million Texas feet. donut style kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. podiums. And, right. um, and we've got staff down there, so we've opened an office there. We have a project that we're doing with Disney in Celebration. That was a mixed-use project with hotel and apartments. Uh, the hotel was delayed. We sold that site to a hotel developer. They're starting uh, now because that market... Come back. We're just finishing the first phase of the apartments, which is 350 apartments. It's been great. We we overlook Epcot Center. And, oh my uh, goodness! So and wow. and you know we've it's been great working with the Disney team. And that's be for that. Will that be Disney employees or what? Uh, well, Celebration is a mature planned community that was done by the world's best architects. Right. You know, right. it was Cesar Pelli and Robert A. M. Stern and and Robertson and I mean this. The who's who of who was in the architecture world in 1992 when they mm-hmm. first planned. Sure. So it's it's a it's a picture perfect planning community and it's mature and it's maintained impeccably. So it's we have the last big site in there and we're very. How did you unearth that one? Out of curiosity. You know, we had we had we brought a guy up here that used to run related in Florida oh, okay. to, to, to to run our condominium business, and he is connected in Florida. Oh yeah, and, and he's since he's retired several years ago. And one of his this was a deal that was under contract by another developer, and it fell out, and and they brought it to us because they knew John, and so right place, right time. Wow, that that's one of the 
kind of deals where, as an owner of a company, I just wrote a check that I, I wasn't going to let that one go. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was uh, you know, the last Disney site. So, so we, I mean, we just started lease up. We're leasing it at, at about a forty a month pace, oh, and incredible. and there's no resistance on the pricing. So it's we're extremely happy. That's one of the ones we own, independent of any partner so that's exciting one family office yeah that's interesting so your florida deals are mostly your own whereas you have a partnership in north carolina with uh, the acreage company yeah so acreage yes and that's been delightful so uh, they're real synergies a i I was on john's board of the national uh, trust for the mall for uh, eight or ten years and got to know i've known him for 40 some years, I went to, he formed this real estate group for young real estate oh, yes. operators. Right. I went to one of his meetings before I formed my company and that was 45 years ago. So, so, I mean, I've known him for that long and his partners that he had at the Ackridge company back then. Sure. And so, so we're, I think we're, we've got three or four deals where, um, and we're doing land development, apartments and, commercial development, mixed use development. And so each of us has our own specialization. Sure. So he'll do office and if there is office. Right. And, and we're much more competitive in buying properties because we can buy larger tracks. So right. home builders really kind of stuck buying lots and commercial guys don't yeah. know what to do with the lots and we, sure. can, we can take down the whole thing. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I mean, you could bite off even raw dirt in, as a part of a site and just resubdivide if you wanted to. Right. Now, are you willing to take entitlement risk in these markets or, or not? I don't take one. entitlement risk like I used to. Okay. I mean, I'll buy some sites, but it it's it's not worth Especially it. Especially out of your out of your patch. I think it'd be a little harder. Yeah. Well, you know, in the 2008 downturn, I wound up with a whole portfolio of land and that was the bad news. I had to, so I spent 8 or 9 years Delevering all of that, but at the same time, we re-entitled all of it, and land prices have inflated, so it's given us working capital. So that's interesting. You know, it it, it really worked out so well. Land and it, pays off in the long run, as long as you can hold it. You know, actually, <laughs> actually, you know, that's what I tell the younger people here is that every piece of real estate has its day. You know, yeah. You know, my father's advice to me was he said. You know, he said, the old guys in the real estate business tell me this all the time. He said, the key to success in real estate is don't die. You know, <laughs> you know because <laughs> and don't over lever. You know, he, he didn't put that in, but, uh, you know, I, it, it took me one second to, to learn that one. Yeah. yeah. But it's really true. I mean, some of these sites that we think are valueless wind up being just real nuggets of gold. And, but you got to wait and politics change and. You know, who knew that multifamily properties were going to have more tax base than office buildings? You know, the politicians still don't understand that. It's like, wait a minute, this is this is a, this is good for you. I mean, downtown Washington has office vacancy at all time highs right now. Yeah. And I said, so what do you do with these buildings? You need to tear them down and build off, build apartments or build multifamily or something. Yeah. The square buildings are good for like storage, but yeah, they're not I mean, good for multifamily. Can't, yeah. Can't. Yeah, I don't think they're too deep. So yeah, it's really hard unless yeah. you separate the buildings, right? Or put atriums, create in them. an atrium, or yeah. do something inside. That's, that's what Doug did at the head company warehouse. He cut atriums in it. 
That was a funky deal. Did, did you ever yeah. walk that project? Yeah, we managed it. I mean, there are sloped floors in the building. Oh, yeah. And an elevator big enough to put a car in. He he had a party in the elevator. It was, that's how big it was. <laughs> he had a bar and we were dancing. You know, it was, you know. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't design the building that way. Let's put it that no, way. No, no, no. <laughs> the concrete's like like 14 inches thick. Oh, yeah. And those, those leaded glass windows he mm -hmm. had, too. Yeah. Well, it was a warehouse. It was a warehouse. Yeah, it's fascinating. So contrary to my earlier question, your website is a video setting the company as a family business. With the young Mr. Forrest Kettler speaking, is the company evolving with a family legacy? Or is it, quote, like a family and ownership will be given to the senior team members accordingly? Well, like a lot of companies, that's a work in process, but I'll tell you where we are with it. Okay. And, and I have three, I have two sons in the business and they're both same positions. And so that's Taylor and Forrest. Taylor is the oldest son. Mm -hmm. Forrest is second oldest child. We have four kids. Mm -hmm. And then my son-in-law is married to my daughter. He's, he's third oldest is also in the company. So, and they work within the company in different roles. So Forrest is in, on the capital side and the financing side, Taylor's on the management side and construction side. Mm -hmm. and, and Kyle, who's my son-in-law, works in land development. And he's he's getting his feet wet in some of the entitlement work we're doing. So the, the way we've got it structured here is, is that we have long-term incentive plans. So there's, there's equity there. And then we provide a slice of most favored nations status participations in our deals and they're fully subscribed by our employees so they have a chance to be involved in them in that regard and then essentially our LTIPs like a lot of other LTIPs where promoted interests are, mm -hmm. are kicked in and, and those are significant in many cases mm -hmm. and so that's spread through low teens number of people and so a lot of development platforms don't have any real value. The real value is in the deals. Mm -hmm. So we do offer, we give away pieces of it as incentives, long-term incentives. We have annual bonuses, obviously, and then and then there's buy-ins to deals where they get the same promote that we get, but Kettler is taking all the risk on the completion guarantees, cost overrun guarantees, all that kind of stuff. So that's a really good deal for them, and I think that's why they, they recognize that. The future. So we have a managing board, okay, and then we have an investment committee, and then the managing board is really family members. So we're we're evolving into a more mature family office type type structure, and really the managing board allocates capital to to the to the real estate company. So how the real estate company is owned is really doesn't make any real difference. You know, is it a sub S corporation? Is that how it is set up, or is it how, how is it set uh, yes, up? Yeah. yes. So, you know, it's a pass-through entity just like all of our, our right. projects are. Right. Yeah, well, some companies set up private REITs internally and there's a lot of different ways of structure. Yeah, that's next. That's the next cycle, but I'm going to have to learn how all that works. <laughs> it's, uh, th this, this is working quite well, and from a tax standpoint, it's worked well. Yeah, yeah. and, and any new project, you set up a new enterprise for yeah, each yeah. project, exactly. I assume. Exactly. Yeah. The one thing that is that could conceivably have a lot of value is some of these management companies are, are trading for 
what I'll call funny numbers. It's like they're trading for almost what their gross receipts are. And and that's just... Is that branding, you think? I, I, I think that there's at scale, okay, like Graystar, okay, I think it's very profitable. Well, your your company name now has almost brand value, I would assume. I would hope so. I mean, we spent a lot of time converting from KSI to Kettler. So we, we had sponsorship of the Iceplex, and we spent a lot of time and money being involved with that organization. I don't know how you are. measure that. That's the question. I guess if you went public, you'd know. They do. But, I mean, they, they'll, 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 they've got a lot of, what I'll say are, they can convince you that it's that the amount of eyes they see these electronic signs that they've got both inside and outside the arena, the amount of times we're mentioned on the radio. I mean, all of those things leave impressions. And you know, does it does it be does it make you a more valuable brand for someone to rent? Maybe, maybe not. Even if it doesn't, you're just having the awareness of the mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. has some value. I can't tell you the amount of times that people go, oh, the Iceplex, you know, when they when I introduce myself or something. So right. it's, it, and when we were just a real estate company and we were called Kettler, it, no, I mean, it, they, they'd ask me about Kettler Brothers. Sure. But they wouldn't ask me about Kettler and Scott or, or, or other Kettler Enterprises. So. Interesting. Interesting. So you're still in work in process then, basically, on trying to Figure out what your family's going to do long term. Then, eh? well, it's it's they'll have that option. I mean, right now, the people that run the investment side of this company and the development side of this company and the administrative side of this company, the accounting side of this company, I think we have as good as there is in the country. That's great. I, I honestly believe that, and I mean, we've got really talented developers here. And we're sought after to do very unique and very complex projects. Plus, we're getting more and more sort of standalone apartment projects, which are real portfolio builders. And that's the that's the real meat and potatoes of, of, of the portfolio. There, you know, we still look at malls to redevelop it. We still look at urban mixed use projects. Those take a piece of your soul away from you. I mean, they they really are complicated. They're really a lot of money. And invariably, they have they have a project cost that you don't have in a standalone project. It's, it's the fusion of all these things, the complexity of these commercial HOAs, if you will, yes. are, are mind-numbing. Well, it's interesting you mentioned malls because probably half the malls in the United States mm-hmm. are probably going to go defunct. Right. Maybe. And so what happens to these properties? You know, I mean, is this... Do they all get leveled? Do they get redeveloped? What happens to the land? Some of them are phenomenal locations mm-hmm. in their cities. Usually at prime intersections, good visibility, everything. Well, there's one answer for every one of them, and that's redevelopment. Okay. Right. But what that redevelopment looks like is different for every one of them. Okay. So so it's how do you evaluate that? So I mean, as as early as 2003 or four, the Mills Corporation came to us with their portfolio. And we I have a whole basement full of their plans from their Sawgrass Mall to all the stuff that Herb talked about in his thing. We looked at all of those for redevelopment. And it was too early then. You know, at that point, we were just looking at doing high-rise 
uh, apartments or condominiums mm -hmm. in the sort of ring around the dying mall. But, you know, some malls are healthy. You know, well, Tyson's one. Yeah, I mean, Folger Pratt is doing Landmark. Landmark. Which is an interesting project. Yeah, we, we, we looked at hard at that. I mean, I think Cameron's smarter than me. I think he's figured it out. We couldn't figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> or it frightened me too much. Well, how are, isn't Hughes involved in that deal? They own it. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. they, they did when we looked at it. Right, right. But I And then there's another one up on 270 that's going to be an interesting challenge, which is back in the backyard of your former neighborhood there, the Lake Forest Mall, which I think is, that's a tough one. That's, that's a tough one. It'll be interesting. So the pandemic has uh, perhaps changed the real estate business, perhaps forever in many ways. How do you how do you see it affecting your operating businesses and markets where you invest and develop? You know, the thing about the pandemic is it, it accelerated the move to the suburbs. And I think that's a permanent shift. Also, some of the politics that have, evolved in this period have, I think, also accelerated flight from some urban areas. And, and I mean, we're, so, so we were already investing in tertiary markets like Wilmington, North Carolina. We've got a new project there that, I mean, it's like a venture with Live Nation. So we're building a 320 unit apartment project on the Riverwalk next to a marina. We've got a whole group of restaurants. All of our apartments look out and there's a concert venue that'll have 25 concerts. Oh, nice. It's a it's a really cool project. And but trouble with some of these tertiary markets is rent growth, employment, incomes, you know, we're we're a little anemic to make this work because it's a wrapper building. And so that market's it's like loaded. up ten yeah. percent this year, whereas Minus ten percent in Tyson, minus ten percent downtown. You know, so it's it all of a sudden the numbers are hum, okay? And so even with lumber up like almost two to three million dollars on this one project alone, that's just lumber. How much do the rents go up though? In your pro, your pro forma based on your uh, we're up about fifteen to twenty cents. That, that's all the difference in the world. So any anyway, that that that, that sort of I think, caused by the pandemic. So that changes your view to the world a little bit, doesn't it? Totally, because it's the same thing in Charlotte, same thing in Tampa, same thing in Orlando. We're looking at three sites in Jacksonville and St. Augustine. And that's a, that, that, not enough time, but that's a, we have a really interesting relationship with a home builder down there. Mm -hmm. And that's, we're buying land with a home builder, much like we're, splitting land with acreage for mixed use okay, mm -hmm. with the home builder they're taking for sale lots we're taking the apartments and we can buy bigger pieces in these plant communities together well you're positioned well being in probably the one sector that probably was least affected by the pandemic of all the home building and, and residential sector it seems i think it was the most affected in a positive way i mean there's we haven't seen numbers like this in 15 years I mean, they, they said there, there there hasn't been a quarter like this since 2003. Wow. So, so, and that's been tremendous for us. We have eight active land development projects right now. And we have another like six or seven in the pipeline. So home builders have to be barking at your door for, 
for product at That's this right. point, right? For finished yeah. lots. Right. So you're looking for dirt then. You can find it. Yeah, and that's that's another reason that we're sort of leaving, well, not leaving this market. We can't find it in this market. Mm -hmm. Although I do have four or five sites that we have in various stages of entitlement here. So we we got another 1,200, 1,300 lots here to go. Mm -hmm. And we got 2,000 in the eight projects we've got in our underway. Our home builders seeing prices going up significantly on ground up. New, new housing. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're they're hammered by cost increases too. So they're just passing it on. They're just pa they're passing it on. We're passing it on. Well, low uh, interest rates have got to yeah. be a huge benefit, to right? That, obviously. So yeah, I mean, I'm hearing people overbidding ten to twenty percent on on existing housing right. in this market now, in particularly in desirable neighborhoods. It's, right. It's amazing. So beside the pandemic, we've seen social changes accelerate as a result of several incidents over the past year or so. How is Kettler adapting to the diversity challenge and more broadly the ESG issues in general? One of the benefits of going into the tax credit market was that I'd say that the majority of our employees are minorities or women. And same thing in senior leadership roles here. And, and that's been for literally since the early 90s. So that's going on 30 years. And so, I mean, I feel really, we always felt really good about that. I mean, at one point, I don't know if this was true or not, but it was an interesting point. We had employees that spoke close to 40 different languages. Just, wow. just because of being in that submarket in DC, with the amount of immigration here right, sure. and international flight. Uh, so, you know, we, that's just the way it's been around here. And my former partner, Rick Hausler, was a huge proponent of, of diversity, diversity in, our, in our workforce and, and, and making opportunities happen for minorities and for women. And it's still the same thing here today. So it was conscious. It was conscious. It was conscious, and we also happened to be in a position where we could make it happen. Mm -hmm. you know, so it was that sort of accelerated the, the process here. So, so it's really not been. I mean, you hear about other companies that have had to. Oops, you know, we need to be very careful. It sounds yeah. like you've been that way for a long time. Yes, and 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 been conscious of it too. I mean, but we've also been in a position where we could make it happen. So it. it you know, people that have to form a diversity committee, you know, you know, when when 80 percent of the people that want to be in the real estate business are are frat boys. <laughs> you know, what can, I mean, that's, you know, the brokerage business. And, you know, it's tough because the pool is is limited. OK, mm -hmm. so we were blessed with having that philosophy and having a workforce accessible that allowed us to have diversity. That's great. And so. That's great. So, yeah, very, very proud of that. Relationships are key to our industry. Other than family and colleagues, who has influenced you the most in your career from either the public or private sectors? And you've mentioned a few names already, but anybody else come to mind that uh, are? Well, yes. I mean, I, 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 can, I can reel off a, a number of them. I, the first home builder that I really got close to other than sort of with the NV guys 
was a guy named John Neal who had a company called Fairfield Home. And I, I would say he's the first sort of volume builder that actually had good looking houses. I mean, you know, wraparound porches, great proportions for the windows, nice roof pitches, interesting designs, great curb appeal for lots that were basically cookie cutter lots. I mean, it, and so I really gravitated towards him. He, he was really a great mentor. This is been, back in the eighties. This is back in the eighties. Yeah. And, and he, he had been president of multiplex corporation, been a multifamily builder. He knew the public markets. He was going to, he was about to take his company public. He was as old as my father, but he and I became like best was friends. Was he an architect? I mean, did yes, he, yes, he I was. was yeah, Cause you yeah. said design. Yeah. I gathered that. Right. And you know, there was Dwight Shaw, of course, and Chuck Langpaul, who, who was the president of Envy. Frank Saul treated me like a brother and a son for years. It was a great, I mean, he introduced me to everybody in Washington, D.C., put my wife on the board at the Corcoran. I mean, it was, it was, it was a wonderful relationship. The Hazel family, you know, they had a land development side right. too. Bill so Hazel. there was Bill Hazel. Bill. Bill Hazel was a mentor of mine. He would come by my project. This is the first project I built. He'd come by and he grew up in Arlington, but you would have thought by his accent he was from about like Alabama, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know if put on or not. He was a gigantic man. And, Bigger than and, his brother though. Oh no, he was he was he was big. He, Bill was a big guy too. Yeah, but Bill was bigger. I'll put it that way. And Bill would come by and he'd have a driver and he'd be in this gigantic Buick. And he'd go, let's go look at jobs. So I'd get in this car and like eight hours later, you know, I, 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 I think, I think in those days I took my dog to work. I think my dog was running around the neighborhood. I, I thought I was going to go down the street, you know, and he, like, we'd like be drinking Jack Daniels in the back. I was like, like, you know, we'd go look at every land development job in Northern Virginia. He was a classic dirt guy. Wasn't oh he? my God. Yeah. I love that man. And you know, and he, he did everything for us. I mean, and they still, they have three projects going for us now. And there really, actually, there was Larry Nussdorf and, of course, Jim Clark. They would take me to play golf with him once a year. And sure. Wayne Quinn, of course, uh, you know, zoning lawyer. But really, almost more than anybody for the sort of land planning, there's a man named Alan Ward. And he is the top designer. He designed the Beijing Olympic venue. Wow. He's like the master plan for Harvard College. Uh, university and and he did the land plan for square 54 we did the master plan for gwu as part of that so project. Mark zuckerman brought him in for that no we brought him you in brought he, i i called him up cold called him to design brambleton and he did a new urbanist plan for me there and at the time alan's about eight years older than me so he was young then he's a genius he did the mile for us I also redid Potomac School as a board member, and he redid the land plan there. They have a whole. You planning. mentioned new urbanist. Was he look kind of like Andres Duany in a little bit? Or he or was. It wasn't so religious for him as it <laughs> is for Duany, but yeah. he he's much more practical. I'll put it that way. Uh-huh. You know, it's not a slave to the design. Sure, but no, he, you know, suburban suburbia is defined by landscape and. Mm-hmm. Urban environments are defined by architecture, you know, and, and there's there are lines in between. And anyway, those are sort of, I can go on forever. Yeah, yeah, I people. understand. Those are your keys. Yeah. So I'm going to step back. There's a question I missed, and I want to get back to your company a little bit. I, I didn't mention it. So have you developed a mission statement with a defined corporate culture and values? 
Yes, and it's right uh, on the front of our website. So it's it's basically inspiration from the ground up, and it's enhancing lives by envisioning, developing, and managing today the lifestyle and communities of tomorrow. Talk about how you evolved to that, how that how that that all came about. You, you know, I we believe it. You know, because that's what we do here. We're more than anything. More than I was taught as a kid growing up, it's about community relationships that people have with their neighborhood and their neighbors and the buildings that you build and the uses that are there and how they get, how they function, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what we do here. I mean, more than anything, we're proud of the rest in town centers and the redevelopment of Tyson's and the borough and these big, and the, you know, union market and Pentagon city. I mean, we did, we did metropolitan park where Amazon's mm -hmm. going. That's our project. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's exactly what we do. We envision these places that might take 20, 30 years to build out. Mm -hmm. And and you know, we it's nice to be able to go back and see that they're working because a lot of projects you go back and they're not working. You know, like a Lake Forest Mall. That's not working. Okay. Some malls work, some you know, and you know, hopefully I my kids aren't walking around. My derelict projects. Well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. I just finished. I just wrapped up, and uh, it's going to come out ahead of yours. But my, an interview with John Peterson mm -hmm. and Taylor Chess at the Peterson Company. Okay. And what you just said is almost exactly what they're saying. And you know, Milt Peterson is a mm -hmm. huge proponent of community development, and community contributions. So right. It sounds very similar in alignment. I learned that from my father. It's you could if you, so I watched him do it and I watched it happen. Okay, because mm -hmm. I sure. go work at Montgomery Village and for the people that lived out there, that community was their lives. I mean, mm -hmm. th those people were it was it was like a religious experience for a lot of those people because they moved to a new place to have a new life. You know, mm -hmm. and and you hear all of these big plant community developers, all the Rouses and the Bob Simon said the same thing that a lot of people come here seeking meaning in their lives. And, you know, if you can actually make that happen, you know, it, it's a really great feeling of, of accomplishment. And, and, and it's really true. I mean, you, you can see these one-off jobs and then you can look at a place like the borough and that even in the pandemic, that street's working and it's just, it's just a fraction of what it's going to be in the future. But it's a real downtown. It's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. So what are some of the biggest wins, losses, and surprising events in your career, Bob? I mean, you've talked about, you know, the, the downturn, and you've talked most recently about some of the successes that you've had. What are some of the more surprising things that ever happened to you that just kind of came out of left field? <laughs> things um, <that> was, wow. <laughs> the one that came out of left field is, is Reston... The owners of the the rest of Reston Town Center at the time, half of it was a parking lot, and the other half was sort of. The, so, what are we? What year are we talking about? This now? would be 2001 or two. Okay. And Tiger, the the hedge fund, was owned Terrebrook and Terrebrook, Tiger Westbrook. Yeah. Tiger Westbrook. So right. So they. They had a fund and they had to divest. So they had to get rid of the rest of the land there. Yep. Terrebrook. Terrebrook. I did two deals with them. Oh, okay. Yep. So we bid, and apparently there were 30 bidders on bidding on the last big blocks of Reston Town Center. 
So we ran a model, and at the time we had built these new high rises in Pentagon City, and we were we were really new to that business, and we were sort of out ahead because we were doing the most luxurious high rises at that time. Our, our competition was really more vanilla high rise stuff, and so we were looking at the numbers that people were getting in Boston, and we were looking at the numbers that people were getting. Pentagon City. And so we, anyway, make a long story short, we said, you know, there isn't this, op the incomes and the jobs are in Reston. And we think that people that live in Reston would like to live like that. But they live in Boston and they live in Pentagon City because they don't have that option. Mm -hmm. So we, we ran our numbers and we thought we could get the rents that would justify a high rise. So we bid a number like $30 million to buy the site. And we didn't realize that we won by like $7 million. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and Terrible kept bit. coming back and coming back and coming back and asking us to, well, to justify what we were doing. And we said, well, here are our numbers. And, you know, and we said, well, they, they said, well, you know, you, you've got the best bid. And, but said, well, where's the contract? You know, it's, so finally they said, well, we, we think you just like bid high to win it. We said, no, we, we closed at that number. But that was the most successful project. I mean, that was the biggest surprise I ever had. I thought I was going to get slaughtered by the competition. Was Tom DeLisandro on the other side of the table? Yeah, yeah. He was on the other side of the table. Great guy. He is. And so we won that, and but in a surprising way. I so. sold Clarksburg Town Center to them. Oh, okay. To Tom. He bought that. And unfortunately, that project got into a huge mess, as you yes. may have read about. Yeah, setbacks so, and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. you mentioned NV earlier. David Flanagan, who was the offshoot of NV right. in Elm Street, acquired the remains of Clarksburg Town Center for $1. <laughs> <laughs> About, I don't know, five or six years ago. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. No. But Tom was, is a great guy, and he's still doing land of all, I understand. So, so that was that was that was what I'll that's say. That's a huge work. project. That's, yeah, that's great. So, share some stories about your favorite and not so favorite experiences and any lessons you learned from. Well, we we shared about a few of them. Any any other stories that uh, we haven't talked about yet that you thought are interesting? Let's see. That I that I haven't already bored you with here. <laughs> the no, I can't think of any off the top of my okay, head. Okay, that's fine. Been very active in the community, including board memberships, real estate organization leadership. Volunteer activities. Do you participate in this to stay invisible in the community, or do you find personal satisfaction in both or both? It's personal satisfaction. I learned. So I, I've been on a number of boards. I was I was I got to be on a, a number of boards, like at the uh, Home Builder Association or NVBIA here. Right. And I really found myself just going to meetings and voting and and not really contributing other than, you know, going to listen. And I, I thought, this is really a waste of time. And came to the conclusion that if I could make a difference, then I can, and I can be of real value rather than just, mm -hmm. I, I, I thought a lot of people were on that board either for contacts or right. social, or it's a way that a lot of these guys were sort of second, third, fourth down in the organization. They had some power. And I didn't seek any of that stuff. I mean, to me, I wanted, I wanted to make a difference or, or not do it. And so uh, probably the one I was most proud of being involved in was at Potomac School 
which had just built a high school 20 years previous to it. They didn't have a very big endowment. They'd were never raised. There? Our children were there. They had never raised more than $3 million at the time. And the school really had, had like some of the highest rankings and, but their facilities were just inadequate. It needed to be completely rebuilt. It needed about a $50 million project. So Did that's you where notice I met. that when you first came there? When no, we were, we were there 10 years before that became evident, and nobody was in high school. So most of it in the beginning was the high school mm-hmm. needed it. And then they, but so three of us became the head of the capital campaign. So it was me and Ted Leonsis and, and Gene Case. And, sure. Yeah. And, and uh, so the three of us embarked on the fundraising, but I, I brought in, I did the zoning, the planning, the land acquisition for it. I spent like seven years doing it. So we raised 50 million in the first tranche and another 35 in the second tranche, which is actually run by another. And you spent all of it. I spent all of it. The school's been rebuilt and it's, it's a real success story. That's great. And it was done at a moment in time where the costs were right. I mean, it would be twice that today. Mm. And uh, so they fixed their endowment. They fixed, they fixed their, uh, Did you work all their with, schools. Do you have a new architect that helped design it or what? Yeah. Well, we brought Sasaki into the campus plant. So, wow. so I've, you know, I've traveled with Alan Ward everywhere for that. And so, That's yeah, great. it was, it, That's great. Yeah, it was, it was a fifties modern design and, and the buildings had gotten shot, but we evoked that style with the, remainder of the, of the buildings. That's great. So what are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Bob? So they're all kind of fused together. You know, family and work are really kind of together and we all live near each other mm-hmm. and the whole family does. And, but you know, and, and my wife and I have had nine grandchildren in the last five That's years. Exciting. So, you know, three during the pandemic. It keeps and, you busy. Yeah, so family is like, it's like it permeates everything. And, and then giving back to the community, I'm currently on the board of, of, of Wesley Seminary, working on a big real estate project there with them. So, great. Again, if it's the model of, you know, if I can be actually of some value, mm-hmm. then, then I want to jump in. Well, it's interesting, you know, your friend Gary Rappaport has a very specific formula. Yes, what he does. <laughs> yeah, everything. <laughs> It's like, it's like, oh, time to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Gary's very structured. Very structured. Yes. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? You you know, it's, it's, unfortunately, you know, a lot of my, I'm only, I'm I'm in my late 60s, so I still feel like, um, like, really young. It's funny. my, My dad said to me when he was, my age. Uh, he said, in your mind, you're always 18. John. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really true. But it does make me live more for today than I have in the past. And so, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, business advice, you know, everybody's got their own skills and everybody's got their own perceptions and everybody's got their own way of learning. So, so, you know, I can share how I perceive things and how I've learned from it, but I don't know if it, that's necessarily true. I do know that, you know, there's a limited amount of time here. And our grand, having grandchildren makes you appreciate the time and the present 
more and more. So, so as I said, I mean, similar, like if you're talking to your 25 year old son, what would you tell him? You know, so that that's the thing, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I've been able to make this company a reflection of me. That's great. My company, you know, yeah. and it's been an adventure. So it's not been a job. I don't feel like I've ever had a job. And I'd be a horrible employee because I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't do what I tell myself to do, much less what anybody else would. So, so, you know, I want them to have the same feeling of freedom. And that's up to them. It's not something I'm ever going to dictate to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I hope they're having that experience here. But, you know, that's one of the reasons we have a managing board and a family office and not, you know, you're either in the real estate company or you're not, you know, because if they want to go do a brew pub or if they want to go volunteer their time, you know, I, that should be their Go where their choice. spirit leads them. Yeah, exactly. That's great. That's a great attitude as a father. That's for sure. That's awesome. So my final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Bob? That's a, it's sort of along the same lines. It's like live your future today. You know, it's 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 the way to go. I'll be here in the present. That's great. Well, Bob, thank you very much for your time. This has been thank a very you, wide-ranging conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for it. including me in your podcast. So we just listened to Bob Kettler on our interview with him, and it was very enlightening. Bob went through quite a quite a career, roller coaster career, and now is uh, probably doing as well as he's ever done right now with this with this enterprise. And uh, as I usually do, I'm now bringing on my sidekick uh, Colin Madden, who will give us his perspective of the, of the conversation and ask questions as well as uh, some insights on what he had to say. I, I had to think about it. Colin, welcome. Hey, John, how are you? Uh, Good. Thanks for having me again. Just another great podcast. I thought, I thought it was, it was super interesting learning about his career, his life, his uh, highs and lows. And I, I certainly learned a lot and wanted to dig into a, a few aspects of the, of the podcast. And I think I'll start with passion. I feel like a lot of a lot of the podcasts I've listened to, you can really tell that everyone is very passionate about real estate, very passionate about their career, and you can tell it comes across in his his visionary aspects and how he looks at real estate deals. And Larry Nussdorf said that Bob is a visionary, and he can take a, a plot of land in the middle of nowhere and make it into something great. That that passion, that vision, do you think it's something that can be taught or learned or? Is it just something that is inherent in in these certain icons that you've you've talked with? I think it depends. You know, it's interesting, you know, Bob's background, of course, growing up in it in the Kettler Bugathers environment. I mean, every day as a kid growing up, he said he lived with the the growth of Montgomery Village, which is perhaps mm-hmm. one of the largest PUDs ever built in the region up in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And so he lived it growing up as a kid. So he saw what his parents, his, his, his dad dealt with as well as his uncles on how they were looking at things and the interplay amongst the, the three brothers and, you know, learning about home building and land development. And his father's perspective was interesting where he disagreed with his brothers mm-hmm. with regard to separating land development and, and home building, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. 
Right. And he went, he figured out that land development was a much more profitable enterprise. <laughs> and it said today, it's, you know, unless you do it a certain way, you can't make money in home building. Right. You know, so it's fascinating that perspective. Mm-hmm. But he learned quickly and he was very fortunate, of course, to come into a mid 1980s marketplace or early 1980s where it was just run it, blow and go on buying land and getting things built because the money was flowing. The, the, the land sellers were, you know, willing to make deals and it was a different mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was like the wild West there here in West in, in Fairfax County. It was just, it was <laughs> just, it was incredible. As when I first moved to Washington in 1985, I mean, everybody was just more, 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 right. more deals, more, <laughs> more, you know, it was just nonstop. It's just this incredible upside opportunity. And then, of course, you know, 1990 came along and bit everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. And that's, that's something I wanted to get into. I guess I, I'm obviously a, a, of the younger generation. So we always hear of the scars from 2008. And in real estate, in a lot of your podcasts, the SNL crisis comes up quite frequently. And I would say it's a, an aspect that I don't have too much knowledge on. Uh, I just know it was quite bad. Could you, A, go, in, go into a little bit of, of depth of how bad it was and what you learned and what you, what you noticed? And also, B, those who you are interviewing are always the survivors of the SNL crisis. Yes. Um, they might have taken their licks, but it seems like they survived. How many people didn't survive and how many people were, you know, high flying before the crisis and just could never get back on their feet in regards to developers and owners, landlords, that, that type of person. Well, it got so bad that it was a deterrent to new people coming into the industry as well, mm-hmm. uh, which was interestingly highlighted by Kathy Robertson in my, or Kathy Bonifay is her maiden name or name now in the interview that I had with her, which was my fourth or fifth podcast episode mm-hmm. she's a she's a gen xer and she came into the industry you know right about that time and she was it was she was probably the only woman she knew that was willing to do that she yeah. was a financial analyst and kind of fell into it but there were very few people interested in the real estate sector in the early 90s after this crisis mm-hmm. what what led into it is just this human emotion exuberance yeah, just, you know, the, you get to the point where, you know, more is never enough. You know, just got to keep going and keep going, keep blowing and going. And our industry is very cyclical. And something happens usually that triggers it. With the SNL crisis, it was fraud that basically that, that did a lot of it. So there was a lot of fraud. There were a lot of guys that, you know, there was no such thing as discipline and underwriting. An example of which was the perpetual deal that that Bob Kettler did on that land out in Western Fairfax County, where he said, "No, no, you know, we'll we'll finance 100% of the costs, and we'll also, you know, be non-recourse. And we'll fund all the money up front. There's yeah. no discipline there." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I said, Bob, it was all debt. He said, "Yeah, it was all debt." I said, "Okay, yeah. if any of those loans are out there still, give us a call." <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the, the whole reason the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation, was set up was because, you know, there was absolutely no discipline in the market. So they mm-hmm. closed 
you know, 90% of the SNL is closed. And, uh, you know, Frank Saul was able to sur- make, allow Chevy Chase Bank to survive through that. He, he converted from being a Maryland savings and loan to a federal one right before I joined the company in 1985, uh, joined the Saul company, because there had been fraud and, and criminal activity in Maryland's savings and loan situation for years prior to my arrival in early. So it, it had started in the earlier 80s. Mm-hmm. In Mar- in the state SNLs, and then it kind of spread into the federal ones, led primarily by large ones out in in uh, Texas and uh, Arizona that went, you know, started lending nationally, and then you know that bug kind of spread to Washington where the exuberance just got hit. So we had institutions like Perpetual and Standard Federal, and there were several that were very active in the real estate sector here. United mm-hmm. Savings Bank. There were several of them that just went under and were right. taken over by the RTC. Right. And I was reading an article on Bob in preparation for this, and it was discussing how he had to figure out how to be continue to be a visionary while still being able to ride out the wild swings they they realized during the SNL crisis. What What do you think he learned, and what do you think the industry learned as a whole coming out of that? And was it a short term memory, and or or did people learn enough from that crisis that, you know, it was, it was a perpetual shift in how people think and act. And Quite think. often, most in, in real estate value is created when disruption occurs. Mm-hmm. And so arguably the 1990s was probably the greatest value creation in the history of real estate because mm-hmm. in 1991, the values were reset almost anywhere between 50 and 75% in some cases, depending on the product type. So Sam Zell is an example of somebody who took advantage of that. And mm-hmm. he's had several podcasts with him. And just for the listeners, if anybody doesn't know who Sam Zell is, he's an entrepreneur from Chicago who was one of the pioneers in the early 90s on the REIT business with two very large REITs that he built, Equity Residential an equity office. And with those REITs, he was able to buy property at anywhere from 30 to 50 cents on the dollar here in Washington and elsewhere and around the country coming out of this SNL crisis. So he took advantage. And then another company that is well known in this region is J.E. Roberts Company, which no longer exists. Joe Roberts passed away, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But he started in distress you know, acquisitions prior to the crisis. So he got an understanding of the business and was positioned very well to take advantage of it. He was really the first big buyer of RTC-led securities. So, you know, he basically set the market pace on acquiring distressed assets and then redistributed. And several companies have spawned from his company since then, private equity firms. And then, you know, several people in this market basically started their your companies in that at that time and some REITs that started. So Car America started about that time. One of my podcast game guests, Bill Jaynes, was in, in the origins of, of Car America with the Bass Brothers and setting it up. Mm-hmm. Federal Capital Partners basically started about that time, you know, coming out of the crisis, taking advantage of distress in the marketplace, buying assets and then, you know, lending into the market. So the debt funds and CMBS basically started about that time as well, the early 90s. So a lot of changes 
brought about, you know, creative ways. So one of the things about our industry and a lot of industries is human, human nature takes over. And also human ingenuity comes in to, to take on challenges to, to mm-hmm. overcome them. We're in a current situation now where human ingenuity is going to come out of the, out of the pandemic and come up with some new ways of, of dealing with it. The question is, will we see another exuberant stretch here in some fashion that we may not know about yet? So we'll right. see. And sort of speaking of, of the crisis further, I read that Bob once said that if you're in real estate, in the real estate business, you're not in this or that, you're in real estate. And it takes a great deal of sense to be skilled and adept at all forms of real estate. So to me, it, it kind of circles back to the to the last podcast discussion of generalization versus specialization. And do you think as a as an employee and as a firm, you should have expertise in almost every facet of real estate just because you never know? where you'll have to shift to, to kind of keep the pitch alive during certain crises? And if so, how, how does one learn more if, if they're not specifically doing that in their current job? Well, I think, you know, Bob knew, knows his strengths, what he's good at. He's mm-hmm. kind of the front end guy and figuring out stuff. And he talks about hiring this woman recently and doing a corporate strategic plan mm-hmm. and bringing on this lady who he, she, he says it's just phenomenal. Yeah, the efficiency expert. That's right. Yeah. And you have to know what your strengths are. And he's figured out that, you know, this is not his one of his strengths. So he had to add some help. And I think that there's plenty of examples of that in the marketplace where you bring on team members that can help bolster what you need to have happen. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Bob is a growth-oriented guy, obviously. So he wanted to build a larger enterprise, and it, he's positioned right now to be to grow his enterprise to be as large as anything here in Washington, really. And he doesn't have a huge staff in the senior thing, but he does in the you know obviously it's property management. Although he scaled his property management back, I guess he was at up up for over sixty thousand units at one point, and it's back down in in the thirty thousand range now to try to have a little bit more control over it, which, you know, I think he's self-governed himself much better than he used to, I guess Mm -hmm. is the point. He's learned Mm -hmm. a lot from that, being able to manage his himself, at least in some aspects. But, you know, he clearly is what I call a deal junkie. I mean, he will, somebody brings him a deal, he's going to look real hard at it and try (laughs) to do it. He can. Right. He's still in the growth mode and he's about my age. So, Actually, he's older than I am, so yeah. he'll keep going. He's got three sons and you know, two sons and a son-in-law in the business. So it was interesting. He hasn't organized himself completely to to do that transition, but I think he's working on it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it sounded like it. It also sounded like he didn't want to push his kids anywhere, which which I respected. And it seems like his father might not have pushed him into the industry. Like, no, no, yeah, no, and. You know, comparing it to, to the Folger Pratt situation, they, because of Brian Folger's son-in-law, or not son-in-law, but his nephew, uh, Cameron Pratt, going to Harvard and having sense of that program there, that right. got them organized. You know, mm-hmm. that came from the bottom up. Bob's children haven't pushed him to do that yet. I think he's still earlier on in, in, that, in that gestation <clears throat> period there of doing that. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, I mean, if... I assume that if he were to drop dead tomorrow, his senior management would figure it out pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I, I'd, 
I'd expect that. Speaking of Sam Zell, I did, I did kind of get a, he reminded me somewhat of Sam Zell, at least from the uh, beginning of his career as like a college student working in a multifamily and developing or at least fixing up and basically flipping some, some units. And I also kind of found it interesting that I think it was either on his billboard that, that he answered or what he would give advice to 25 year old that it's live your future today. And then I think looking back on his career, it seems like he truly kind of lived those words. And, you know, at 23, when he was working on a, what was it like a 400 acre land site, Mm -hmm. 150 unit urban project with basically no experience. I'm sure he had some experience, but it certainly was, he's a go-getter. I don't want to call him a cowboy, but it seems like at 23, if you're doing that, it's, (laughs) you have, you have big plans for your future. So he definitely lived the words of live your future today. And it seems like he's still living those. You know, it's it's really interesting. Another podcast guest of mine, David Flanagan, who mm-hmm. was early on in Envy Land working for Dwight Shar, who whose name came up. Uh, Dwight, of course, is the founder of Envy. And so David came right out of graduate business school. And Dwight said, here, here's a 200 acres in Richmond. Develop it for me. It's like, I said, David, what? Who helped you? I figured it out myself, you know, I Mm -hmm. said, you know, if you've got the the courage and the, you know, the ability to go after it, great. You know, you know, he said he didn't have to do it. I don't think he had entitlement risk that he he didn't have to deal with that. It was Mm -hmm. just getting, doing the physical land development work. Yeah. It was entitled. I think he had now, of course, everything he does and, you know, Bob still is active doing entitlement work too. He understands where the value is in creation of land, mm-hmm. his entitlements, taking something and making it something else completely. Did anything surprise you during this this interview of, of his answers or some of the stories he told? Well, I, I thought that his transition from, you know, I mean, I wanted to get behind because when you know, I, as I shared with him, I worked for the stall company at the same time he was a partner with Frank, and mm-hmm. I, I just, just, I was just shaking my head in amazement as to what they were doing at the time. Yeah, yeah. And then saying, and then when things happened in 1991, and I saw it firsthand inside, I said, "Oh my God, what's Kettler going to do?" You know, I'm just like, and his <laughs> ability to form his partnership with Clark. Mm-hmm. And and then have the salt company pay him advisory fees and keep his company in place, and then he basically ceded a lot of his employment employees back to work for Frank Saul. Eventually, mm-hmm. over time, he didn't have to lay people off. It, he didn't have the tough conversations that he. I figured that he had to do something like that, but right. he was very fortunate to find the right people to help him tra- in that transition period, and to figure out the tax credit business early mm-hmm. on. And they were at one point with the largest tax credit developer in the country, he said, or tax credit owner. So he pivoted elegantly through that process. That surprised me. Right. I didn't really understand that because in my mind, he was he was death spiral time. I mean, I thought he was going to oblivion. Yeah. Directly. And he pulled it off. He completely came out, you know, and eventually now is smelling like a rose here. And it's impressive. It's it's very impressive what he what he was able to do. Yeah, back then, did a lot of people death spiral and not pull it off, or was he kind of the leader of the industry at the time and and still pulled it off? 
or there's yeah, there some, were, some people who weren't so lucky. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of office developers that just went to oblivion completely. Mm-hmm. So in my past podcasts, so for instance, Nick Antonelli was a founder of PMI Parking. Mm-hmm. They'd done extremely well in financing people. Well, he went non he went to guarantee construction loans for companies that were kind of questionable, like a company called Huntmar mm-hmm. in the late 80s doing spec office buildings out in Northern Virginia and building more than than leasing. And they didn't have pre-leases and things just kind of went sour, obviously, at that time. And mm-hmm. they didn't have good capitalization strategy at all. So it brought him down. He, went, he had to file bankruptcy and all the companies that he was involved in. He swept a lot of people out of the marketplace for that. And then mm-hmm. uh, that was talked about in the Ray Ritchie episode and a couple others. Right. And then the other, you know, the other land development companies, you know, obviously Dwight Shar had to reconstitute his company, did only do home building and couldn't do any more land development. David went through it and he had to restructure a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, guys weathered it and were able to handle it. And, you know, you know, and, and the Saul company was able to get through by selling some assets. They they had to do it. And then Carr, of course, did their their IPO in, in forming a public REIT. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of interesting stories. Every every co- company that came out of that had to have a different, creative, re- yeah, a different way of approaching it. Want to get your thoughts on one thing? The uh, when he was discussing his development sites, and he says that as a developer, they can provide meaning to the lives of people. It's almost like a religious experience to me. I feel like a lot of the work that developers do and re- people in the real estate industry of when they're creating value, it gets lost. That you know, people are living in these places, and he's actually creating an experience and and not only increasing the value of the land, but increasing the value of, you know, the lives of people who get to live and interact with these places. Just wanted to get your thoughts on what you took from, from that insight from, from Bob. Clarify that a little bit more, Colin. I mean, you're saying the lives, I mean, you're saying the residential experience, is that what you're saying? Or what, what are you what are you getting at here? Yeah, I think his his company's motto was inspiration from the ground up, enhancing lives by developing and managing the lifestyle and communities of tomorrow. So how much kind of like the, the visionary aspect of a developer is factoring in the improvement to lives and improvement to lifestyle and how, how does it all tie in together and how difficult is is it to actually pull off? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think he used uh Montgomery Village is kind of an example of that, which was mm-hmm. what his family did. Mm-hmm. So that comes from the family orientation of his growing up, is what he saw of all the families that they that they had this this community spirit that was built. And I think he tried to feel to emulate that from his family and then to do that at some of the communities that he was involved in developing. I got the sense going back to our last interview with with the Peterson companies that that Milt Peterson that was his main objective not quite as much with Bob but I think it was just part of his his life to be able mm-hmm. to have this community spirit mm-hmm. kind of feeling at his developments and it came from I think that family environment type of thing and you know yeah. and also Brian Folger had the same thing up here at the Potomac project where they're trying to create the spirit of family involvement so, yeah, I thought, I thought that was super interesting, especially when you said religious experience. It's that it goes pretty deep when when you're talking about that. Well, that that's basically all the the questions I had. 
Is there anything you wanted to hit before we adjourned? I'll just say that, you know, Bob Kepler is, you know, one of the, you know, most resilient development guys I've, I've ever met and worked and talked to. I mean, what he went through and what he was able to, how he was able to, you know, build such a large company mm-hmm. before the 90s crisis and then, and then starting basically over again and then rebuilding it back. I think there are a lot of other companies that have done it, but, you know, mm-hmm. they're certainly, certainly a strong example of being able to, to make it happen. And mm-hmm. his diversity of, of now doing four different product lines and building institutional relationships in those product lines mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in all cases now, and his partnerships with almost every non-residential developer in the region says a lot about his personal wherewithal, both financially and you know, in trust and, and credibility. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that Bob is certainly an icon and certainly uh, done a, quite a job in right. uh, rebuilding his <clears throat> company. On that note, thank you, Colin. And thank you listeners for another great episode and have another very interesting interview in a couple of weeks with Linda Rabbit of Rand Construction Founded. So thank you for listening and have a great couple of weeks. Take care. Thank you.